The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 149 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. So grateful that you uh, tuned in again this week because we've got the most amazing conversation. My guest, Jennifer Roach, tells an incredible life story. I love Jen. It was such a pleasure to have her in our home and to get to know her. And thank you again to Nick Galetti for introducing us. Uh, Jen is an amazing human being with uh, a story that it just blew me away. She is so great. You will love this conversation. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, why I needed a little bit of an attitude adjustment. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here live in the Latter-day Live studios, we're back in the studio, and you know, my listeners love a good conversion story, and wow, do we have a conversion story today. Jen Roach, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Ah, I am so thrilled. I want to give a shout out to Nick, because he'll get upset if I don't. (laughs) Nick Galetti, who's been a guest on the show and featured many times. Uh, He's the one who connected us, and so thank you, Nick. Now that that's out of the way, right? <laughs> I'm so you know I had to do that. Nick so, is amazing. He's, he's fantastic. Yep. He is the he actually interviewed me for our 100th episode. Oh, I love that. So he got to host the show once. He's the only other person to host the show. Uh, but we have got to. You've got a big story to tell. But first of all, we got to get to know you a little hmm. bit. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Yeah, I am. I currently live in Seattle, Washington. We have lived there for about 17 years. Mm. Before that, um, I grew up in California, Central California, Modesto, Stanislaus County. That's where I grew up. Uh, my husband and I got married there. We moved. But before we move yeah. on from that, we have listeners all around the world. Oh, yeah. They hear California and they picture Malibu. Now, nope. I grew up going to Central Valley a lot. Modesto to, is not Malibu. I used, to, I used to fish on the Stanislaus River oh, yeah. all the time. And Modesto is not Malibu. Tell us what the Central Valley of, U- of uh, California is. Well, when we moved there, it was like middle 1970s. I think the population of the entire county would have been maybe 80,000 people at that point. Sure. Very agricultural. Um, still is agricultural. We lived... Way out in a rural area, peach orchards, almond orchards. They, yeah. call, they call them almonds there, not almonds. Not almonds, almonds. almonds. <laughs> um, vineyards, lots of stuff like that. It's grown and changed an incredible amount since You've then. You've got like the world's biggest nut store That's ever. That's absolutely right. The nut, nut tree, is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah, the nut tree. Yeah. The nut tree. It's like a mega emporium of nuts. Of nuts, yeah. <laughs> the entire Central Valley is full yeah. of nuts. <laughs> Anyways, so we we grew up in the in the country of Central California and yeah. um, ran the orchards and swam and had it was a, it was a good childhood. And in case people weren't paying attention at the very beginning, that we have a conversion story coming. You were not raised in the church. I was not raised in the church. So I was um, I was baptized as a baby mm-hmm. in the Methodist Church. Yeah. Um, 
And my mom took us kids, there were three of us, and my mom would take us to church. My dad wasn't interested. Um, And when we moved to California, still attended a Methodist church, but one town over, there was a really big, sort of growing, youth-oriented, like, mega church Mm, um, kind of church. And I think my mom was just trying to make sure that us kids, like, stayed interested in church. And so we started attending there. It was the place to be. Uh, All kinds of teenagers, activities, music, ruckus fun. Was your mom religious like a lot during the week or was it more of a a Sunday thing? I think I was certainly the most religious kid in our family. In fact, um, when I was a little girl, my favorite kind of pretend play was that I would pretend I was a Bible translator. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) You were a Bible translator? I was like eight years old. I'd get all my little stuffed animals and set them all up. And I would get three by five cards. Stop laughing at I me, I love Sean. this so much. This I, is this might be my favorite moment out of 150 <laughs> interviews we've done. I would get three by five cards. And on the one side, I would write something that was gibberish, just a made up nonsensical word. And on the other side, I would write the English word for it. And I would pretend that I was teaching my little class of stuffed animals the, the English words. And then I would... Trans, I, I'd get a Bible verse and lay out all my cards in English and then flip them over into my gibberish language and try and teach my little congregation of stuffed animals. Chad, <laughs> the, that is the coolest. <laughs> I, was, I was definitely the most religious kid I knew. So you weren't just into church because there's, there's one thing to go to church because of all the activities mm-hmm. and things and the music and it feels good. And then there's the religious side. So you found yourself to be pretty religious yeah. early on. Even early on. I got in trouble. Like, I remember like fourth grade being in trouble at night because I would sneak a flashlight under my covers in bed because I really wanted to read like the book of Deuteronomy. And my parents would just be like, you have to sleep. Wow. <laughs> I was a weird kid. Just a weird little kid. I don't know what to tell you. And we're not talking about, you know... John or Matthew. We're talking about Deuteronomy. I don't, I don't know what to but tell you. I think that's really cool. And knowing a little bit of what's to come, I mean, mm-hmm. that's obviously, you know, a lot of preparation and, and Actually, really cool. My very first memory in life is um, being, there's a little chaos going on in my house, hiding in the closet. I was probably three years old. And I remember having a conversation with God. And feeling his love and peace. Mm. And like, that's my very first memory. It's awesome. Yeah. So you're growing up, you're going to church, you're hanging out. Mm -hmm. Uh, What were you into in your like more teenage years? Yeah. So um, my life got really complicated in junior high because my dad um, passes away in a car accident. Oh, so he was he was working for General Foods. Um, they had promoted him to a new position, and our family was supposed to move from Modesto to um, Princeton, New Jersey, mm. is where his new position was. And he went ahead and moved ahead of us. And the plan was my mom was going to stay and get the house ready and sure. and all those kinds of things. And while he was there, he died in a car accident. Oh. So. And you were how old? Um, I was twelve. At the time, I was 12, my brother was 10, my sister would have been like 14 or 15. 
Yeah. So as you know, from, and you're more of an expert on this kind of stuff than I am, With we'll get into the whole mental health thing and whatnot. Talk about, I mean, is there a worse time? Yeah, there. There's no good time to lose a parent, but that's a particularly yeah. bad time. I mean, there's a reason, I, be, I believe, this is Doctrine of Sean, there's a reason that we go into young men, young women's at 12. Right. You're, you're really saying you're done with the little kid stuff. Yeah. Time to be an adult. And if you ever need dad, I mean... Right. Jen, yeah, oh, devastating. It what it did for me, um, well, really two things. It was my first experience of having a serious disconnect with faith as it had been taught to me, um, mm. because in the like Protestant evangelical church, the the choices after death are very binary. Either you have made some kind of formal profession of faith and you go to heaven, or you have not. And you go to hell, and it's immediate, and there are no chances. And I knew perfectly well that my dad was uninterested in anything having to do with Mm. faith. So I remember being 12, understanding the teaching of my church, and like friends or, or sometimes other adults in the church would say to me, they were trying to be comforting, and they would say something like, well, at least you know he's in a, in a better place. And in my head, I would just think, you know, gosh, I, I can't tell them that that's not true. Wow. And so it was, a, it was my very first experience of something isn't right here. So it caused you to question the doctrine you had been taught. Yeah, actually, the, I mean, I was... The way that I resolved that at that age was kind of, I think, how anyone in that church has to resolve it. And you just sort of, um, you sort of toughen up and you say, well, all right, if that's how God says it is, he's in hell being tormented for eternity and there's nothing anybody can do about it, then that's how it is. And I have to trust God that that's somehow fair and right. Wow. It doesn't feel right at all. No. I tried to wrap my mind around, okay, this is what you say Jen, it these is. these are heavy things for a young teen yeah. to be processing. Even a know? weird little teen, even a weird little kid like me. Yes, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so your family stayed in Modesto. We stayed in Modesto. Um, we moved from our home out in the country into town. So for me, that meant changing school districts changing all my friends, Mm. um, where we were living in the country. Like, we had horses. It was this great place to grow up, and my mom just couldn't maintain all of that on her own. So I lost my dad. I lost this great um, ranch where we grew up. My mom um, had to – she'd kind of worked, like, off and on. Yeah. um, But she had to go back to work full-time. At some point, so like sure. everything in my life changed. It all got flipped upside down. Mm-hmm. We did not, as a family, we did not deal with it very well. Mm. I think everyone was really depressed. Of course. Right? I mean, that's natural, of course. It, it is natural. I think some people go through transitions like that better than others. And for us, instead of sort of coming together as a family, it really kind of just drove everybody into mm. isolation. And so what happened for me was one of the leaders in my church, he and his wife, kind of took an interest in me. Mm. And they um, effort, like they were just really kind to me, helping me out, talking to me. Um, and then it, that turned into like they would have me over for dinner. And that was great. And eventually, 
my mental health was was going pretty far downhill at that point, and they understood it was hard in my home, and they said, well, we have an extra bedroom. Why don't you um, come and stay with us? Mm. And so I did, and I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Really? Like, I thought that was the best thing. These were people who were really nice to me, and, yeah. it, and it was just, like, wonderful and loving and great. Yeah, sure. And... What I didn't realize at the time is that it was all a setup for grooming for sexual abuse. So I actually lived with them sort of on and off. Um, I would go back to my family for a little bit and I would go back to them. And it was always, you know, which frying pan do you want to be in? So there really wasn't a safe place for you. No. I mean, was this more your young teenage years or was this all throughout? So it started, um, I met them when I was 14. It ended when I was 17, so yeah. off and on for, for about two solid years. Was his wife aware of this at all? Uh, she says that she was not. Yeah. I, we lived in a 700-square-foot in a apartment together, the three of us. Mm. So I don't know how that how, happens, yeah. but that's what she says, is that she was unaware. And how did this all come to a head? Um, like, how did it all get exposed? Yeah, an end. Yeah, so he... Eventually, he and his wife, um, he takes a job elsewhere, another city. And so they move away for him to go be a pastor somewhere else. And that was, that was how it ended. I really believed. So this happened the end of my junior year in high school. Um, and at that time, I thought, I'm scot-free. He's gone. Um, I can pretend that never happened. Yeah. I don't have to tell anyone. I get to carry on with my life now and everything is going to be fine. And there was about probably six, four or five, six sort of golden months where that's the reality I was really trying to live in of, I don't have, I don't have to I'm bury move, that down deep. Yeah. Just move along. Yeah. Move along with your life. And, and what happened was I ended up reading Macbeth. <laughs> Have you read Macbeth? I've never read Macbeth all the way through. I've seen the play. Right. Macbeth is about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And one of them is what it does to you when you keep secrets. Mm. And so I read Macbeth and I thought, okay, this is not a secret I'm going to be able to keep without it kind of destroying me from the inside For out. For sure. So what I know now about how teenagers disclose sexual abuse is exactly how I did it. I sort of identified somebody that I thought would be safe enough to tell. Um, most, most teenagers don't disclose abuse. Um, the average age of first disclosure is 52. Whoa. Yeah. First disclosure, 52 is the average age. First disclosure. Yeah. That they first admit, hey, as a child. Yep. That happens at 52, 52 average. Yeah. I think that the Me Too mo- movement has probably knocked that down a little bit. Well, um, I hope so. I hope that education and parents yeah. being more open, saying, if this happens, you're safe to tell us, Yep. no matter what someone has told you. Yep. When teenagers do tell, 75% of the time, it's accidental. So they say something that mm. doesn't quite add up to some adult and the adult starts asking questions and figures it out. Mm. So the very tiny percentage of teenagers who, who decide to disclose, wow. they do it like I did, which is you identify somebody you think you might be able to tell 
and you give them one odd piece of information and you see what they do with it. Mm. Right? So I, I identified a, a man in our church that I felt was safe and good and I had access to him and I thought I'm going to tell him this one little piece and maybe he brushes it off. Maybe he doesn't catch it. Maybe he does like, we'll see what happens. But at least you haven't put yourself totally out there. Yeah. Teenagers almost, almost never disclose that way. Was that scary to drop that one piece? Uh, yes. At the time I think I was terrified. Yeah, I can imagine. And he, he understood it immediately as this is something odd and so it actually took about five or six conversations for us. They were probably hour-long conversations before I had given him like enough breadcrumbs yeah. to start to put a picture together. Mm. Wow. Um, so I, I, I told him he was um, sort of like a junior level of leadership in the church where I was. So he rightly went to the senior leaders of the church and said, this is the claim that Jen is making. And so I got called into a meeting with um, him, this guy, and like four or five of the other full-grown men, male pastors, them kind of sitting in a line and me sitting there in a dark room, closed the door, them saying, uh... This is the story that he's saying you're telling. Um, are you sure this is what you want to say? Because this has serious consequences. If you want to take it back, now's the time. Oh, oh, Jen. Yeah. I can't. Oh, I hope we're better than that time. Yeah. I, I hope. I, I think I th- mostly. We have moved from that, I, I think. I think we have. I pray we have. Because yeah. right now, I'm feeling just angry yeah. hearing that. And so what they did, the plan that they came up with was twofold. One was they didn't want me to say anything to anyone, including my mother. And they wanted to handle all of it uh, kind of in-house themselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, gross. So there was never any question of like, are we going to like tell the police? Are there going to be charges? There was none of that. So the plan they came up with was they were going to call him and say, here's the story Jennifer's telling. You have a week to tell your wife. And in a week, we're going to call her, ask her what you have told her, make sure it's the same facts, make sure she knows. And then you guys are on your own. So he was, he was working. I'm sorry, (laughs) Jen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's ridiculous. That's a plan. Like, that's yeah. what you came up that's with? That's what they came up with. Oh, my gosh. Right. This, this is so gut-wrenching, Jen. Th- this is why churches should not do their own internal investigations no, for issues like this. of course. Oh, so they, that's what they did. Apparently, he tells her. They call and talk to her. Um, and that was supposed to be the end of it. They kind of patted me on the head and said, all right, you've, you've done the right thing. Go along with your life. So my relationship with that church got complicated right i have this big thing that's happening like you know still trying to come to terms with it emotionally and they had asked me not to talk about it and so i i stayed there i don't know another two or three years trying to work it out that's like a second second victimization yeah did it make you feel like you were part of the problem to tell them hey don't talk about this at one point um so this pastor who had done this, he's off working in another church in another state, and 
I don't I don't know if this is true in in the in the Latter Day Saint Church, but in the Evangelical Church in the eighties, like having your like traveling choir, your youth choir from the church go around and sing in other places, like that was a big deal. Mm. And so our church did lots of that. And at one point, the the choir was set to go sing at the church where this guy is a pastor. Like, they know exactly who he is. Ugh. And that's sort of what, like, broke my confidence in the church of, like, you guys didn't take this seriously at all. No. So I, I, by the time that happened, I was like, oh, I got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, and so I, le- I left. I started attending another church in town. Was that the end with that pastor? He just moved on and you mo- moved on and that was it? So if you fast forward... Um, to about 15 years ago, um, he and I, he, that pastor and I had a little bit of contact with each other where he was trying to apologize. He was sort of trying to make things right. Mm. He ended up, um, in therapy and his therapist contacted me and said, I actually want to do like a lie detector test on this guy because usually like if there's one victim, there's more victims. He's saying you were the only victim. Mm. I just want to give him a lie detector test. Like, can you think of any questions you would really like to have an answer to under those conditions? Mm. And by then I was like, I don't need any, I don't want or need anything from him. Yeah. Glad, glad you're working with him. I don't, I don't need anything. But he, um, the pastor and I, ended up having a couple of like email exchanges where he was trying to apologize. Mm. And he ends up writing me uh, a letter, a typed letter, about six pages, that really detailed, like, here when this happened, here's like the guilt I'm admitting with this, and here's how I planned this event so that I could manipulate you into this. In turn, like if you're looking at like what's a good letter for a, perpetrator to give it's a decent letter Mm. um and i held on to that letter at at that juncture and really about 10 years before and about five years after i had tried to get the church where it happened to at least have some kind of acknowledgement that this had gone on in their church because it was at that point i knew about me and i knew about all the boys who'd been molested and i knew a couple of other girls who there was stuff going on, but I didn't know enough of the details. Right. And this church had said something in public about abuse has never happened here. And I just lost it. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just make an effort to try and get them to admit their own history. And they never would. They ignored me, ignored me, ignored me, ignored me. And so the, it's like 2018, the me too thing is starting to happen. And, Never in a million years did I think that I would ever talk to anyone in the media about what had happened. That was not a plan that I would ever go down. But I thought, this is really fascinating. You have all these like young starlets in Hollywood who are talking about... Um, abuse that has happened to them and it's getting some traction sure like people don't care about this issue and all of a sudden they care about this issue so i thought okay i have not been i've not had any success holding this church accountable i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i can try and so i went on the website of the newspaper from my hometown the modesto b 
And I just thought, I'm just going to start reading. Who who do they even have writing for them right now? I'm just going to start reading reporters. And so I just started like going back as far as I could through the archives and reading, reading stories. And I came upon a reporter who I read like maybe three paragraphs. And I just said, this is the guy. This is, this is the person that I need to tell this story to. Mm. And so I, I emailed him and said, like, do you want to hear a story about abuse at this church? And I, I think it took him a couple days to email me back. And he, in, in like super typical reporter fashion, is like, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's your angle? <laughs> Who are you? Yeah. What do you want? Yeah, sure. Blah, blah, blah. And so we scheduled a phone call and I kind of told him the basic version of it. And he took that and said, like, all right, let me let me do some checking, which yeah. I didn't know at the time and, and kind of know now that meant, let me see if anything you're actually saying right. holds any water yeah. at all. Um, and then, like, we would schedule another phone call and I would tell him some more and he would have some more questions. And we went we went down this path maybe for a month. Wow. I didn't have any, like commitment from them of like yes we're writing this as a story i'm just talking like we're just talking and eventually he called me up on the phone one day and he says okay here's the date we're gonna run the story and here's the date we're gonna run it it actually turned out to be my birthday oh my gosh which i thought "Ah, i'll I'll take that yeah um so they so they run the story it's on the front page um fabulous fabulous story the reporter actually wins an award a journalist award for it it was really good and so the church where all of this abuse had happened the current pastor um wanted to do a a sermon on kind of responding to like this had happened in the media and this was going to be his response to it and he took um the character of moses as kind of his text for talking about like Moses can't go in the promised land. He does this bad thing. And so God doesn't let him enter. But Moses is a really good guy. Like that's kind of his angle of, of the sermon. And it was terrible. It was, it was absolutely hideous. This sounds like the worst thing I've ever heard. Jen, this is like so bad at every level. I keep I waiting for this. But then the greatest thing happened. It's not happening. Oh, but then the greatest thing happened. Okay. I'm so, <laughs> I can't take this story. So... He preaches this sermon on Moses, and um, the reporter, his name is Garth, he and I had scheduled a time of, like, he was going to listen to the sermon, and I was going to listen to it, and and let's get together, and we'll we'll talk on the phone about it. And I was all worked up, and I told him all the reasons this was such a terrible sermon, and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And he says, he says, well, I think it was a bad sermon, too, but I have different reasons. Hmm. So just really tell me. And he says, well, I have scriptures that you don't have. And I was incensed. I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't have any scriptures that I don't have. I was the Deuteronomy girl. <laughs> right? By that time, I had been to divinity school. Yeah. I was ordained. I was working as a pastor in a church. Yeah. I worked in Christian churches almost my entire life. And here's this guy I barely know saying, I, I got scriptures you don't have, and it's about Moses. And I said, you, you have got to tell me what you're talking about. And I think he kind of came back to his senses at that moment because he's like, well, I'm in the newsroom right now, yeah, <laughs> which is like an open office situation. It and might he's like, not be the right place like, to talk about this. like, I'm not going to talk to you about scripture right now. Yeah. 
fair. Okay. So as soon as we hung up the phone, I start texting him. Yeah. <laughs> you have got to tell me what you're talking about. So he sent me a link from the church's website to Book of Moses. And I was at work. I had a like a two-hour-long work meeting that I had to go to, sat as far in the back of the meeting as I could, and scrolled through my phone and read the Book of Moses just like jaw on the floor of like, what am I even reading? <laughs> so like, I'm a scripture loving girl. Yeah, I know that about you. Right. Yeah. And, and even like through my teenage years, even through like all of the abuse, the church where I was at, one of the things they did right, I think, was they really had an emphasis on um, understanding and even memorizing the scriptures. So we, gotcha. would me- we would memorize 10 chapters a year. So from 7th grade to 12th grade, you memorize 60 chapters of Scripture. So I know, I know it. I know exactly what it feels like when you read it. I know exactly yeah. what reading Scripture does to me. I, like, that's like breathing air to me. Yeah. And so I'm reading the book of Moses, not even really understanding what I'm looking at. Sure. And all of a sudden, I'm having this experience that I have that I know this is what happens when I read scripture. This is scripture. Yeah. Yes. So let's let's put a period at the end of yeah. the abuse. The yeah. article runs. Mm-hmm. What happens from there? Yeah, article runs. Um, I thought that was going to be the end yeah. uh, of that story. I thought, okay, like it's out, it's in the paper, they can't blah, blah, blah. And what happened was um, another girl comes forward and says, oh, I was abused at that church, but by a different pastor. Other abuse victims have come forward from the same church. There's actually about 20 of us from the church where I grew up. Um, my case ended up going through the court system um, which I was extremely grateful for. I had a very clever lawyer who found the sneakiest little way to do it. I was long out of the statute of limitations. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Lots of the cases awesome. from the church where I grew up are, are in the process of going through the court. Did right it turn now. out that the pastor who abused you, mm-hmm. did other cases open up against him, or was that pretty Yeah, nebulous? so I, don't, I am unaware of any cases that have opened up against him. Um He's, he says that he did not do any other cases, but of yeah. course he would say that. So of I, course. Don't, I don't know. Well, listen, I, I know from the short amount of time we've been friends on social media <laughs> that this is a huge issue, and I'm so grateful yeah. that you're so open about it. Can you point our listeners mm-hmm. towards somewhere they can go to yeah. try to educate themselves? Um, two, two different resources, kind of for two different scenarios. If you're just looking for education on... Like, what is grooming? Is this a grooming situation? Like, mm-hmm. what are the statistics on things? What's, like, the basic education? Um, there's an organization called Child USA, mm. and they call themselves the National Think Tank for Child Protection. And they have the most up-to-date statistics, the most up-to-date, like, research and understanding. They're sort of a clearinghouse for all of that. That's awesome. the place to go. If something has already happened, like, if you're dealing with a teenager or a child who's already been through abuse... Um, there are so there, well, two things, there's so many better ways for counselors to work with that these days than there used to be Mm. a wide variety of therapies, some of which, um, don't even require all that much, like diving deep into the trauma of it. Got it. Um, and so some people are like, oh, I don't want to go to therapy because I don't want to, you know, drudge it all back up. And that's really how therapy used to function Mm. and not so much anymore. So 
be open to therapy. Um, my favorite book on recovery from sexual abuse is um, by Dan Allender called The Wounded Heart. Okay. There's a great section in the back that's like a resource for parents of people that that has happened to or partners of people that that has happened to. Oh, wow. Okay. And both need some understanding of like, what does this mean for me? Sure. Um, really, really great resource. I think it's maybe 20 years old now, and it's still, I think, the best thing that's out there. Oh, it's awesome. Jen, I love your passion about it, and I love how frankly you talk about it, because that's what we need is more frank discussion about this kind of thing. Now we're going to go back, because you become this incredible student of scripture, Mm -hmm. and you go to divinity school. Explain Mm -hmm. what divinity school is. Yeah, divinity school is a graduate degree in... um, It's sort of a broad degree that's intended to prepare people for work in ministry of some kind, or it's an introductory master's towards more academic work. Mm. So you study um, the original languages, Greek and Hebrew. You learn... you learned how to preach, the like homiletics. You Where learned, did you go? I went to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. Phenomenal place. Mm. I loved every second of being there. Awesome. And, and MDiv is a four-year full-time degree, and so I was there for a long time. I, it, was, it was heaven for me. Read books and discuss them with smart people, and it was great. I, like, I would do it again, what to was be your, What was your end goal from all of this? Um, when I started Divinity School, I really, I'd already been working in Christian churches for a long time. There's a number of positions you can have without that advanced Mm. training. Um, so part of it was I, I really wanted to kind of just dive deeper into the academic study, Yeah. but I also wanted to just personally make some sense of what, what is it that I'm supposed to believe? Like I still have, you were on a quest. Yeah, I still have these questions in the back of my head from like my dad's death. Is my dad burning in hell right mm-hmm. now? Yeah, right. You're gonna have those questions. Yeah, what like all of the questions that came up from my abuse? Like, how did why did God let this happen to me? And so yeah. I went in with a lot of questions. It was a it was a phenomenal place in terms of dealing with big questions. And at the time, I probably would have said like, okay, I have the best answers I can get, and this is. This is it. This is it. Yeah. Um, so I got ordained in the Anglican denomination. So um, you're full-on ordained minister. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A- Anglicans in the United States are normally called Episcopalians. Mm, okay. Um, but the Episcopal Church has taken a real, like, liberal term. Mm. So the people who call themselves Anglicans are saying... We're attached to the Church of England in the same way that the Episcopal Church is, but are making a conservative turn. Got it. In, like, you can be an Episcopalian and not believe in Jesus. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> you, can okay. be, you can be Episcopal clergy and not believe in Jesus. Wow. So they... The d- Anglican is really directly tied to the Church of England. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There are more Anglicans outside of England than there are in England, mm. Um in the like southern hemisphere is where most of the Anglicans are. That's where their future is. So you being an Anglican minister, mm-hmm. I mean, full on, you are a minister. Most of the time, that sets people in a belief in a pretty hard way. I mean, that's yeah. a pretty strong... Yeah. By the time you go through all that, you know, uh, you're the seeking... Phase is usually kind of done in the in the ordination service. 
it's a full like hour long service that you go through to become ordained. And part of it is you, you actually like lay on your stomach face down on the ground in front of the bishop as a sign of, okay, this, I'm submitting to this tradition. This is it. This is it. You sign all kinds of things. And so when I read the book of Moses and it feels like scripture to me, I have a gigantic problem. (laughs) Jen, you're in trouble. I'm in so much much trouble. You're reading. Now, and were you aware then that this came from, quote, the Mormons? Oh, absolutely. You, You knew all that part of it. You knew... Oh, dear. Yeah. Those oh, Latter-day dear. Saints have maybe some scripture. Yeah. So you read it. It so made sense to you. I I pushed through the entire Pearl of Great Price maybe in a week. Um, honestly, like, it really didn't know what I was even looking at. Yeah. Um, Garth, who is the reporter, was kind enough to allow me to send him just a barrage, just an absolute floodgate of questions mm-hmm. um and when i got to the end of pearl of great price i thought well I, i'm not stopping now so i i started reading the book of mormon and every day emailing garth 500 questions and he kept saying to me you know you really should talk to the missionaries like that's their full-time job like i'll take your questions but like yeah I have a full-time job, and it's not this. <laughs> this is their full-time job. It's literally their full-time job. Right? And I kept saying, I, I was working for a church at the time. Yeah. I was saying, there's absolutely no way I'm talking to the missionaries. That will never happen. Yeah. Was part of that just, what if someone from the church yeah. finds out I'm talking to the Mormons? It was a Mormons? huge part of it, was okay. that would have been... That would have been really sad. What, year, what year was all this happening? This was two and a half years ago. Okay. I is when it really began. I would have been hauled into church court if yeah. someone would have found out I was doing that and I wasn't ready to talk to them. Like, that would have been a very... And because we've jumped around a little bit, at mm-hmm. this time, you're married? Married. We have a teenage son. Yeah. Um, I'm working as a mental health therapist, living yeah. in Seattle, settled mostly in your, my life. Your life path at that time is pretty well settled. I wasn't looking for anything. No. The very first time I decided to attend a ward, I um, show up. It's actually Father's Day. I was off from my own church. Mm. And we, like our family had plans, but we weren't going to do something till later. And there was a ward near me that had an early service. And I thought, I'm just going to go sit in the back. I actually wore <laughs> jeans and a t-shirt because I thought that would make me invisible. Oh, yeah. Good thinking, <laughs> Good thinking. I was really bright. Wear jeans and a t-shirt to our church. Yeah, some, yeah. Ten- some tennis Fit shoes. right in. I thought, I'm going to sneak in the back. No one will notice me. <laughs> that is not what happened. I love hearing it from your point of view then. <laughs> yep. So, you know, I, I think a lot of wards are, I don't know if all of them are like this, but there's a, like a accordion door that you open up. Yeah. That, you know, you can in, open in it back. or close in it. Yeah. So I actually sat sort of right behind where the accordion door is and tried to kind of hide <laughs> a little bit behind it. And it just did not work. It was just like a giant arrow pointing, new person. Oh, that's awesome. When you went to church, you still hadn't met with the missionaries. So I, I had not. Um, okay. Some cute little elders came up and kind of shook my hand and did their thing. If you ever need anything, we can help you. And I'm like, yeah, buddy, move along. And, and now you know how just absolutely giddy they were. Yeah. I mean, freak out. Holy cow. This woman, there, jeans lady, is going to yeah. be golden because you came in by yourself. There's a really sweet sister in that 
um, ward who, you know, she tried to get me to move from my little hiding spot to go sit up with her, you know, second pew from the front. And I was not going (laughs) to budge. Um, And while I'm talking to her, I've realized that even the infants in attendance are better dressed than I am. And so Mm. I made a joke to her about like, you know, I show up in jeans. Here I am. (laughs) And she she grabs my hand and she says, next time you want to come, you text me and I'll wear jeans, too. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, that's one of the most beautiful things right? I've ever heard. Right. That is the right approach. Yeah. That is the way to fellowship someone. Absolutely. You're comfortable in jeans. I'm going to wear them, too, so yeah. that you have someone to go with. Oh, yeah. Jen, that is beautiful. So that was on Sunday. Um, later that week, I was driving to work. Um, I should back up. We've lived in Seattle for 17 years. I had literally in my life never seen any Mormon missionaries. They'd never come to my door. Um, I'd never seen them walking around. I knew I knew what they were just culturally, sure. but I, I had never interacted with one ever. Um, and so I'm driving to work and I look on the side of the road and there's two sisters with their name tags and I drive past them and just so clearly hear the spirits say, you need to go talk to yeah. them. And I'm like yelling in my, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm on my way to the church right now. Oh. <laughs> I love it. So you uh, you stopped, you so talked I to the turned, sisters. I turned my car around. Um, I it Just how the sidewalk was, I kind of had to park like 100 feet away mm. and, and walk towards them. And I, they told me this later. They didn't tell me at the time. But they said, you were so like determined walking towards <laughs> us. We knew you wanted to talk to us, and we thought you were coming to yell at us. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> what a relief. How? So what did you say then? Yeah, so... How do you open that conversation? I said, you know, like, you're the sister... I knew that they were sister missionaries at that point. Yeah. I actually had only just recently learned that. Um, I said, I, I know you're the sister missionaries. I'm reading the Book of Mormon, and I really need somebody to help explain it to me. I can't, you know, I served a mission. Yeah, this didn't happen. Right. Do you understand now? I understand how, now. Who you are in their lives? Yes, I understand it now. But when they're 90 years old, they're going to say this one time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jen, that's fantastic. They they told me later that they thought I was pranking them, mm. that this could yeah, not be real. I bet. Yeah. I bet. I believe that. So I I didn't have time to talk to them or to even really set an appointment. And so I just said, like, do you have a card? Do you have contact info? Like, can you give me something? And so they said, yeah, they gave me their card and it had their email address on it. And I didn't give them, I might have told them my name. I didn't give them any way to contact me. And, and off I went. And so I emailed them probably later that day and said, like, let's set up a meeting. And I still didn't tell them where I lived. Those girls actually were serving not only in a different stake, but they were actually in an entirely different mission. I live right on the the mission line. So they would not have any idea where I lived. And on Friday of that week, I was home. I was making dinner. I still remember because I was making homemade pasta. I'm sort of covered in flour, right, as you do when you make pasta. And there's a knock on the door. And I thought, I'm not even going to answer that. Oh, my gosh, I'm a mess. Like, who would even be here? It's probably a package. Amazon is just going (laughs) to leave the package. And I thought, okay, I'll just go answer the door. And I opened the door, and it's two elders standing there. And in my head, I'm like, how did those girls know know? (laughs) where I lived? 
look on my face and they're they're introducing themselves and I sort of stop them halfway. I'm like, I know who you are. Did the girls send you? <laughs> How confused did the elders look? They were so confused. They're not even in the same mission yeah, as these girls. What are you girls. talking about? Yeah. <laughs> right? What sisters? And so I said, you know, I, I, I met these, these girl missionaries and I'm going to have a meeting with them. And they got real concerned because they're like, well, we're the elders that are assigned to the ward that you live in. Yeah. And I said, I live in a ward? <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine with a mental health background that hearing that you're part of a ward is not Right. I right? had no idea. The in in our setup, the the building that's closest to where I live is not the building where we attend church. Yeah. Um, and I had no idea that you were assigned to a ward. Yep. And so when I showed up for that service, it was merely because it was convenient. The time sure. was convenient and it was you knew close, where it was. Yep. Right? Right. So they explained to me, oh no, no. We're the the elders, and and you're if you want to meet with people, you're supposed to meet with us. Oh my! They were a little jealous. <laughs> yeah, a little bit putting their foot down. This a is li- our this is our place, right? So the they they wanted to know who these girls were. So I go and get the card and show them their names, and they're like, "Oh, they're on a totally different mission. Yeah. You can't meet with them." Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, "Are you kidding me? I just." <laughs> barely made the decision to do this and so they had a little back and forth between themselves about how all of this was going to work out and um it the thing that happened that i didn't know and that the missionaries didn't know um was was just about to happen was they actually changed the mission boundary oh wow so that all of a sudden i was in the same mission where the girls were that is hilarious that is so great, Jen. I know. Oh, that's funny. So we ended up doing lessons, and at first it was just me and the girls, because that's how I wanted it. Yep. Eventually, it became me and the two sisters, the two elders, you know, they would rotate out or whoever, you know, was from our ward. Um, my The, the reporter, Garth, would join Garth us on would Zoom. jump in. I love it. <laughs> Sometimes the senior missionary couple who you know was there, sometimes they would join us, usually a person or two from the ward where I, and so it's like eleven of you us. must have felt so supported. I mean, my goodness. I, I did feel incredibly supported. Yeah. And it was a it was a it's a lot. Um I ended up doing lessons for nine months. Um I I probably knew I was ready to be baptized, um, like emotionally and spiritually, way before I was ready to do it in terms of making the transition with my current church. So at that time, the ward where I was, they were in the one o'clock time slot, Mm. which gave me just enough time to go do my church in the morning I was preaching some Sundays. I was doing all the stuff. Go home, change my clothes, <laughs> go spend the afternoon. We were still in three-hour block at that time. When you went and talked to your previous church, how mm-hmm. did that go? So um, the leaders above me were incredible. Like my, I had two, two kind of overseeing bishops, and both of them were incredibly supportive. Awesome. I've, I've known them for forever. Um they had walked with me through a lot of things. They were clearly disappointed, yeah, but respectful of like that's awesome. You, you under- didn't you didn't get the you're going to hell. Not from them. 
Okay. Um, I think it was a lot harder on people that felt betrayed mm. by my decision more. Like there were people who were in my responsibility that yeah, I understand I, that. Yeah. And yeah. so that, I think that was harder. Hey, you were for just them. teaching us this a few months ago. Yeah. Now you're doing this. Yeah. Really? You're leaving us. I lost a lot of relationships. I had to go through a, they call the process defrockment, which is where you unordain a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of my bishops had said, you know, let's give you 30 days just make sure at the end of 30 days, if you still want to go through with this, like we'll set your date for then. And it ended up being the day before the baptism I'd already planned. Wow. I get that. I mean, that's bittersweet. It was, it was sure. sad and hard. I, the Anglican church was a really, really good place for me in so many ways. The Anglican church is a home for a lot of intellectuals, for people who ask a lot of really deep questions, yeah. really good thinkers. And it was it was a delight to me. I loved sure. my time with them. Yeah. Um, and so to leave that was hard. But I also felt like I've come to know this book, this book of Mormon, as true. I've come to know these people as true. I've come to know this this whole system as being something that I really want, like right. for myself. And so yeah. there's nothing else I can do. So here we sit. Yeah. Did you ever imagine three years ago? Three years ago is when the U2, U2 is when the Me Too um, situation was starting to bubble up. Yeah. And I was just starting to have thoughts of, huh, look at those, look at those young Hollywood girls doing this. Somebody cares about Not what they And I absolutely think the spirit led me to the path that I found, yeah, not just so that I could hold that church accountable um, and so that I could get some justice out of it, but yep. that's how I found my way to where to I am To find Garth here. and to find yeah. the missionaries. And yep. Jen, I, I at once, and this is a pretty common theme in this room when we're talking mm-hmm. to people, at once want to cry for the mm-hmm. things you've been through. I hurt for you. I'm angry. I'm everything else. And yet the goodness of God that I yeah. see and the resolution, sorry, I'm actually getting emotional about mm. this. I, I just see it. And it's not always in this life that we get to see that. Yeah. And what a blessing you are. And the fact that you're out now, just out and yeah. you're... Yeah. I have the sweetest ward. They are... Um, they don't know what to do with me half the time, I think. Um, but they have been so kind and so patient and so good to me. Awesome. When I when I started, um, you know, going on Sundays, the the one o'clock hour, um, it, we were still doing the gospel principles class. That was oh, still yeah. a thing. Sure. And so every Sunday we would sit in gospel principles. I had a notebook full of things I needed to talk about. And at first they were kind of doing the, let's go through chapters in the book and, and discuss them. And I was just sitting there like, when, 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 when do I get to ask questions? <laughs> and so eventually they said, let's not, we're not even going to do that right now. Jen, just open your notebook and let's start. And so there were maybe like 15 people in that class who just faithfully every single week sat with me, let me cry, let me ask questions, let me not understand. Beautiful. It was, it was, they have been 
just a beautiful church family. That is true fellowship. We are going to wrap up this conversation with the question that we ask all of our Mm -hmm. guests. And that is, Jen, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Mm. Well, being a member of the church, um, my... My initial and still strongest motivation is it's access to the community that lives its life out of the Book of Mormon. Mm. Like, that's what my conversion, that's the essence of my conversion was realizing the Book of Mormon is true, is realizing that it was scripture, that God could work in my life. Mm. And so, to be in the church for me, that means getting to work all of that out in a community of people who who love the same scriptures, right? That we all get to work yeah. it out together. And uh, like at one point while I was still investigating, I kind of despaired that it would ever all come together. Um, and a lot of that despair had to do with, am I ever really going to get to be in this community that's living this out? Not perfectly, yeah. Messing it up a lot. Um, but for me, it means being in a community that that lives out of the scriptures. She is a convert to the church. She is an ordained minister, uh, a mental health therapist, a mother, a wife, so many amazing roles, and definitely an inspiration to us all. Jen Roach, thank you so much for yeah. sharing your Latter-day life with us. We yeah. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And my special thanks to my guest, Jen Roach. Jen is an incredible human being, and I so thoroughly enjoyed getting to know her. She's one of those people I just, I felt like I've known her for many years, and I know she is doing such great things within the church and in her life. Thank you, Jen. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, I had this great weekend uh, all planned out uh, this past weekend. On Saturday, uh, Nick Galetti and I We've started doing barbecue competitions. <laughs> There's a, a group called the Steak Cook-Off Association, and they hold these events, and you go and you cook steaks or ribs or whatever, and we've gotten into it, and we went and competed uh, this past Saturday and really had a great time. It was kind of hot, but it was it was just great. And as we were driving home, I told Nick that it may be the greatest Saturday ever because Here we got to compete in barbecue all day, and then the Lakers were playing in the playoffs, and they've started playing really well, and I was just so excited. What a great day. Barbecue and the Lakers. Could life get any better? And I got home super just tired. It was a long, long day, a lot of hard work, even though it was really fun. It was 100 degrees outside, and uh, I took a shower, threw on my Lakers t-shirt. I was just about ready to, to turn on the game. It was like 6.30, 6.45, and the game tipped off at 7 o'clock. And then my wife reminded me, we have state conference. And there was an adult meeting at 7 o'clock. And of course I knew this. We we knew we were getting a new state presidency this weekend. And so I had already, I'd been praying all week for for this conference, but it had completely slipped my mind. And I thought, okay, I just need to make sure that the the Laker game is actually recording. Well, for cable or, you know, those satellite, whatever, we actually use a streaming service. And when I looked up the game, it turned out it was on ABC. Well, ABC, we have a digital antenna, but I have no way to record 
anything that's on, you know, ABC or NBC or CBS or any of those types of channels. I don't get that as part of our streaming service. This digital antenna works great, but I couldn't record the game. And all of a sudden, it felt like my world was crumbling. Like, no. And I had to stop. And I had to change my attitude completely and say, hey, dude, it's one basketball game. You've watched thousands of them. And yes, it's a playoffs game, and that's a big deal to me. But I sat down with my wife, and we turned on the adult session of, uh, of our state conference. And during that conference, I learned so many things. And there were things about one of my children in particular that it just felt like the authority who was speaking just knew exactly what I needed to hear. And I was so uplifted and felt so wonderful. And there was such great instruction. And I'm so grateful that we were able to sit down and watch that beautiful session. And as after it was over, we turned it off. And there was still uh, more than a quarter left in the Laker game. And the Lakers played fantastic and they won. And as I went to bed on Saturday night, I prayed that Heavenly Father would forgive me for being so focused on the things of the world. And, and I was so grateful I was able to change my attitude because there are times when I don't. Discipleship can be really hard. And I think that these things are very real. And that was important to me. That was very real at the time. Sometimes I roll my eyes at what my kids say. Oh, but what about this or that? And yet for me, it's the same thing. But I was grateful to learn those lessons. And I really can't even imagine not getting to hear that, those inspired words that were shared on Saturday night. I'm so grateful and grateful for the technology. What a time to be able to sit in our living room and and watch a session of state conference. It was a beautiful weekend. Sunday, we had uh, another incredible session. And I feel like I am spiritually prepared for the week. I'm so thankful that Heavenly Father has put these things in place and that He cares enough, and I think He understands. Even though sometimes it does take a little bit of an adjustment of attitude, the gospel is true and what a blessing it is in our lives. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. If you know someone who would enjoy the show, we would love for you to share it with them to hear these incredible conversations. Well, I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening.